You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, a show devoted to board and card games as well as those that enjoy and play them. Thank you for your support, and I hope you enjoy listening. Recorded on the 2nd of March 2014, episode 13, Opinionated Workers. Welcome one and all. On today's show, I give my first impressions of the Stefan Feld card game Rouge. My discussion topic for the day is how gamers overreact to negative opinions and whether this is the norm and whether it should be something that should be curbed immediately. And then I give my top 10 worker placement games, not to be confused with the Dice Tower top 10 worker placement games. I am your host Luke Hector, also known as the Warlord that blows up your buildings and citadels. Hello and welcome back to episode 13. Now, I'm not the most superstitious person in the world, so hopefully the number 13 is not going to have a feedback result on this podcast. But I've had good reports over how episode 12 was received in terms of its format and voice clarity and everything. So I'm going to continue with this format for the foreseeable future. And so far, I've been quite enjoying doing the podcast now more than I used to because of this new streamlined way. So there's no changes there. In terms of gaming, well, I've been playing quite a few new games lately because, after all, I seem to be the one who brings the games to the clubs most of the time, so it's been nice to check out a few new titles along the way, particularly from a good friend, Graham, who is introducing me to various games in the sci-fi and fantasy genre, such as Level 7 Mega Protocol, and I've been playing Descent with 2.0 with him quite a lot, uh, Chaos in the Old World was another good example lately and soon on the 9th of March a day has been planned for a few of us to finally get to play Twilight Imperium 3. I cannot wait for this. This is a game which has been touted as the most epic space game in the history of board games. It is one that normally takes most people between 6 to 12 hours to play depending on how new the player is and how many players you have. This is about as epic a board game as you can get, and I have been wanting to play this for so long, but as you can tell, it's not the easiest one to arrange. So hopefully the 9th of March is going ahead, and I promise you on the next podcast, my first impression section will be devoted to Twilight Imperium 3. So if you want to get an idea of what I think of the game, tune in on episode 14. But episode 14 is not for a while yet, we're on episode 13. So without further ado, let's get on with Rouge. I don't know exactly how you're supposed to pronounce it, and I'm sure I'll get some flack for pronouncing it wrong, so I'm going to give you four versions there, and you can make up your mind which one you prefer. But it's a card Euro game made by Stefan Feld and put out by Z-Man Games. It was only brought out in the earlier part of 2013, and it's been getting quite a good bit of buzz lately. It's ranked 188 on BoardGameGeek, and that is a high rating, so it's not one to be taken lightly. But I hadn't seen it being played a lot anywhere, so I figured it was time to jump in on that, when luckily, at the end of my last Portsmouth on board session, I was able to get a chance to jump into a four-player game of this. Now, the idea with Bruges is that it's a city-building card game. You have your own district in a city, and you can build buildings or canals 
or gain reputation, that, that kind of thing. But the way you build the buildings is that you have coloured workers. So worker... It's almost like worker placement, but it's not quite. You have workers of different colours, and you need to match the colour to cards that you have in your hand in order to build the building. So, like, if you've got a red worker, you can discard a red card from your hand and build a building. But it's not just the buildings that these cards are related to. Each card has a different character on it, and it can be anything from various entertainers like a pole dancer or a fire juggler to bureaucrats to scholars to you know merchants you know tradesmen and baker there's all sorts of characters i mean there's these there's, there's a huge deck of cards in this game and the variety is insane for for a euro game i got to give it that props for that but when you've built your houses you can recruit characters into those houses and each one has a special ability which is either on play or permanent or if you use a worker in a particular round, you can activate it. And the idea is, is that as well as building canals and buildings which get you victory points, you're also trying to get a combination of characters out that, as well as being victory points by themselves, they're also going to get you more victory points by the end of the game. As well as that, there are one or two extra mechanics of a... I'm trying to think of the word... Uh, a hazard... I call them the hazard tiles, but effectively it's you have things like pests or fire, floods, that kind of thing that can happen to your city. And if you get too many of these hazard tiles, then things go wrong and you might have to lose money or people, that sort of thing. But the main way the mechanic works is that you've got six dice, I believe, or is it? No, sorry, five dice that you roll and they're all different colours. Now, what you do with your workers on your turn, particularly if you want to gain money, depends on what numbers turn up on the dice. So let's say, for example, you have a yellow card in your hand and the yellow dice comes up with five. You could discard that card to gain five money, five credits, effectively, whatever currency you want to call it in this game. I think they're called guilders in this game. I'm not quite sure where that comes from, but oh well, I'm no history buff. Now... That's for an example there. But you might also have to pay credits to increase your political reputation in the game. It's basically represented by a separate track. And depending on how many twos and ones comes up dictates the cost of doing that for the turn. And if any five or sixes come up, then that also gains you the hazard tiles. So getting high numbers is good for one thing, but it's also bad for another. It's an interesting little mechanic, and I like the way that there's all sorts of different characters. I mean, I ended up with a bucket load of entertainers in my section, but others were, you know, they were taking other routes to victory. And there's 11 different classifications of characters in this game, so there is a lot of them, and you don't even use all of them in one game. So variety, top notch. In terms of the rest of the game, however, this is one thing that bugs me with it. A Euro game should be strategic and in some way tactical. Now, this is definitely a tactical game because you have to react to what's on the dice and what cards you get. However, my problem with Euro games that try to incorporate luck is that for a game that you have to invest a fair amount of time in and usually require some level of skill, incorporating too much randomness can put me off. And this is one problem I have with Bruges. You are dictated mainly by what comes up on those dice and also what cards you draw because you only have a hand size of five and you replenish it after every turn. 
Now, you might draw cards that have got no combination with each other. They might, none of them may combo, so you're just putting in random characters and it's not getting you anywhere benefit-wise. But then you might also draw five characters that combo so well, you're just going to get a massive lead and win the game at the end just because you drew the right characters. And you've got no way to mitigate that because you have two decks, everything's face down, so you can't tell what characters you're drawing, and you've just got to draw five. You might get lucky with the characters you draw, you might not. And the same goes for the colours. You might desperately need some blue and yellow cards in your hand, but when it gets round to you in the turn order, they might have already been taken and you're stuck with colours that you can't use. How do you mitigate it? Well, you can't. That's the problem. This is luck that can't be mitigated, and it's an off-putting thing in the Euro game for me when you have that element. Now, that's the only problem I've got with the game, really. I mean, it's fairly balanced. I would probably say that if you're lucky with the characters, that's going to be the best way to get points. But certainly the canals, building the canal up and getting that first is a pretty easy way to get loads of points. And the building lots of buildings is relatively pointless. Unless you're going to recruit loads of characters in them, building the buildings on their own is pretty pointless. Because they're only worth one victory point each. And that one victory point means nothing in this game. You need to get more. It's not quite as much of a point salad as most Stefan Feld games are. I can come up with some other examples of stuff like that. But it's it's just one of those games where, you know, every point counts. And my, my problem, I, I sound like I'm being negative with this game, and it's 50-50. It's I would happily play this, and I think I've ranked it 6 on Board Game Geek. So it's a game I would happily play. But the luck factor in this game of how it's... Your ability to win this game is dictated purely by the cards you draw. That is a bit of a worry. If you go into this game thinking that it is just a random luck-based Euro game, and it's fairly light, I mean, it's not a complicated game, so it's a light Euro game. You go in with that mindset, you should probably be pleased with this game, and it is generally quite a popular game. I think I went into it with a bit of a mindset thinking that this was going to be a nice, tactical, skillful game, and even though it's slightly tactical, I wouldn't really call it skillful. You are dictated purely by the cards. So, it's an alright game, and I say you should check it out, and you may love it more than I do, but it's I'm a little disappointed because I was getting hyped up over this game. It, uh, I think Z Garcia put it at number 3 in his top games of 2013 chart. You know, he really likes this game, and I was getting hyped up to see it. And it, it's alright, but it just didn't live up to its hype, in my opinion. So... That's my first impression of Bruges. Maybe I need to give it a couple more games, but I don't think this is going to see its way into my collection. So, that's all I can really say about it. Bruges by Stefan Fell. My topic discussion for today is based on how gamers tend to overreact when someone gives a negative opinion on their games. This is something that a lot of reviewers have to put up with at some point in their lives, including mine, but even the famous ones like Dice Tower and Not Another Gaming Podcast, that kind of thing, and anybody on Board Game Geek really who makes a comment in the forums. There's always the danger that someone is going to take their negative viewpoint the wrong way. And I see plenty of examples where people really go off the rails and flame, flame wars begin and just rise up against people who just don't like their particular game. I mean, I take a bit of flack recently because I don't like Power Grid. I really don't like that game. It's one of my top overrated games, in my opinion. It pains me to play it. I don't like the catch-up mechanic in it. I don't like the auction in it. It's too much of a brain burster, and I just don't like it. 
but it's ranked number eight on Board Game Geek, so it's popular with people. And that means that I'll get some people saying, agreeing with me, that it's not that good of a game. But chances are, the majority of people are going to like it. And I'm fine if you like it. It doesn't bother me that you like a game that I don't like. But it does bother me when you get people who react so negatively to you. Almost as if they're trying to... What's your favorite of the word? Like, treat you as an outcast. You know, like, be gone from our board game geek. You have no business here. It's... Oh, right, they're not quite as polite as that. They're usually a bit more... Um, a bit more nastier than that. But it, I just don't get how people should overreact to these types of things. I mean, board. one of the great things I love about board gaming in general is the opinions and the debates you can have about the board games. There are thousands of board games out there, and you're not going to like every single one. And if you like a few, chances are there's going to be a lot of people who don't like your games. Should you take it personally? Of course not. Just because I don't like a game doesn't mean that you shouldn't like that game. It doesn't mean that I think you are a lesser person for liking that game. It doesn't mean that I think you shouldn't play games at all because you like that game. You know, I know a few people that like Paragrid, and they will debate with me endless times about why they think it's a good game, and I will debate why I think it's a bad game. It doesn't bother me that they think it's a good game. It just doesn't mean that we're not going to play Paragrid together. We'll play something that we both enjoy. It's not a problem to hate a game. But, I don't know, I'm getting tired of having to say this a lot of the times to people. It's... You know, the Dice Tower get the same thing. I was on a YouTube channel recently, and they, they'd just done, conveniently, the top 10 work replacement games, and there were people on there who were disagreeing with the top 10 choices they made. And when comments were made about, well, they didn't necessarily like that game, or a game didn't appear on the top list, they were getting flamed for like, oh, this is a stupid list, it makes no sense, that doesn't count, how could you not include this, I mean, honestly? But Why? I mean, if you don't like their list, go make your own top 10. I mean, I'm making my own top 10 and later in this podcast. It's got similarities to what some of them have in their charts. However, there are some that didn't appear in their top 10 lists. Some of the games they used, I either don't like or I just haven't played. But it doesn't matter what someone puts in a top 10 list. It's their opinion. You know, my top 10 is my opinion based on the games that I have played. Just because your game doesn't appear in the top 10 does not mean that I hate the game. It may have just not made the cut. It might even be that I just haven't played the game. In which case, if you think it's a good game and you live near Portsmouth, give me a bell. I'll pop on round and we'll play it. And I'm sure I'll probably change my mind if it's that good a game. Who knows? That's the whole point of doing things like this. It's to get out there, meet new people and play board games on a social level. But the social level is going to get destroyed if people just react too negatively to how people react to their games. It just shouldn't really happen. Now, I'm not saying everybody should love everybody's opinion from it, and obviously, being a human race, we're going to bicker and argue about various things, and we're going to disagree we're, we're going to disagree with a lot of things, but we need to agree to disagree. We need to effectively just accept that not everyone's going to like your game. And the same goes, I suppose, to designers of games. They have a similar problem because they design a game. It's you know, they it's their baby effectively. They've put in all the time and money and effort into it, and then they put the game out there and it gets absolutely destroyed by people who don't like it. They shouldn't be taking it personally though. They can't please everyone. You can't please everyone. So why try to please everyone? 
why worry if someone isn't pleased by it? I guarantee that when I do these top 10 lists now more often, people are going to disagree with some of the things that get put in them. Fair enough. I don't mind. If you really disagree with the list, then make your own and then I'll debate on what's in your list. And then we'll just have a light-hearted chat about why you think this game is good, why you think it's not. And if we haven't played certain games on each other's list, let's meet up and play them. That's the whole point. I it just... I don't know. I mean, I suppose... I suppose I could be blamed for overreacting once or twice in my life. I'm not saying I'm a saint when it comes to debating games. I mean, I'll certainly say that Paragrid and Kingdom Builder have given some heated arguments in the past with people who have liked it, but it's something that I've learned from, that you just don't really need to worry so much if people like the game. Or even, not even just games, genres. I used to know some of the uh, Euro Games Club who didn't like worker placement games at all. They just hated worker placement despite being a Euro lover. And I couldn't understand how you could hate worker placement games and still like Euro games, because I thought that was what the majority of Euro games were. But, you know, if he doesn't like them, fine. We'll play something else. There's thousands of games out there. It's not like if someone doesn't want to play the game that you like that you can't find an alternative. There are so many games, surely you can come to some kind of compromise. It's... I don't know. I mean, I suppose... I suppose I'm preaching to a very niche minority here because most people I've met and a lot of you on Board Game Geek and in the world out there playing games, I'm sure are great people. I'm sure never argue in such a negative way against people. And I'm sure the majority of you are just nice, cool people playing games and enjoying every last minute of it. In which case, fantastic. Thumbs up to you guys. That's the way I'd like to see gamers. And I've been to a couple of sort of mini conventions and that. I've, I attend to clubs. I've met lots of people. And they're all generally really friendly. So I, it's not like I'm surrounded by people with overly negative reactions. But I suppose the biggest culprit would be people on forums. You're going to have to accept that when you go on forums, there are going to be people that just don't fancy what it is you've got to say, really, or don't like your opinion. And I've had problems on Board Game Geek forums as well with people who take my negative opinions too seriously but I don't let it get to me it, sh it shouldn't get to me it shouldn't get to you either I mean I'll saying that though there are one or two arguments that I don't like when I get them in on forums and as games and that if if I give a negative opinion about the game then fair enough it might be because I don't like a particular mechanic or I don't think that mechanic works well that sort of opinion but what I hate is when people Give This is one or two, I think it's two different types of argument that people use as a counter-argument and they don't work. One is that you didn't get the game. Now, you know, if you've played it once or twice, you get the game. You've learned it and you've played it. Most games rinse and repeat the same thing over and over again in terms of what happens in the game. So you can't say that someone didn't just get the game just because they didn't like it. I've, I enjoy... Let me give an example of a non-worker placement game. Um, uh, suppose what could I say? Terra Mystica. That's a good one. Uh, looking at my shelf. Yes, that is a relatively complex uh, area control Euro game, and I have played it with people, and some people love it to bits, like I do. But then there are some that really don't like it. They think the theme is too tacked on, or they just think it's not that much fun. Fair enough. Doesn't bother me. But I'm not going to turn around and say, oh, well, it's a complex game. You just didn't understand how it works. If you did, you'd like the game more. No. I mean, that's a stupid argument to use. 
he didn't get the game. I mean, what are you going to say that when somebody brings out no thanks or love letter? You know, you didn't like love letter. Oh well, you didn't get the game. It's a sixteen card card game. It's not exactly much to get, so you can't use that as an argument. And the second one that I don't like is when people say you need to play it more times and then you'll like it. Now this really does not make sense because. In my opinion, if you play a game once or twice, you tend to know if you like the game or not. No game should be in a situation where it takes six or seven plays before you will like the game. If a board game does not get you to like it the first time you play it, then it has failed to grasp its audience. Because a board game should not be one that you have to put tons of investment into to enjoy it. Now, some games, you know, will take time to play and. You may think, oh well, I'm not sure. I'm I'm on the middle ground here, and I'll I'll play it once or twice more and see about it. Which is what my first impression section is pretty much based on. You know, like Bruges, I gave that a sort of middle of the road opinion earlier, and I've only played it once. Now I'm sure I'll get to play it a couple more times, and maybe my opinion will change after that. That's what first impressions are. They are just first impressions, but. At this point, you know the opinion may change, but it's not gonna. I'm not gonna suddenly turn around and love the game. I just might think, oh well, maybe that's not as bad as I thought. But it's not gonna make me suddenly go from meh to I love this game. It's amazing. So it's the same for every other type of game. And this was one of the most common arguments I got whenever I said, oh, you know, you um you don't. What's another one? Coup. I don't like that card game. And Paragrid being you know beating a dead horse from earlier. You know, I got this counter-argument used so often that you just need to play it a few more times and you will like it. No! I've played Paragrid like five or six times in my life, most of the time at gunpoint. But i played it enough times to know that I don't like the game. Playing it another five times is not going to change my opinion on this fact. And Coup, I've played this several times. It's not going to suddenly go from hate to love in the space of just playing it a few more times. A game should grasp you the first time you played it. The first time I ever got shown Terra Mystica, I was hooked. First time I got introduced to Agricola, I was hooked. The first time I tried the cooperative genre, I was hooked. I did not have to suddenly try them over and over again before it's like, oh, you know, oh, maybe maybe they are really good, even though it wasn't originally. You know, so just stop using those two arguments when you are discussing board games. No, you do not have to play a game six or seven times before you like it. And no, you do not have to get the game in order to enjoy it. I mean, if someone didn't get the game in the sense that it was hard to understand, then maybe that's more a fault of the game than you realise. Because if a game is easy to pick up and quite accessible, then that's a positive point of the game. If the game is so complex that it's very difficult for people to get into it, then that's a flaw of the game. Twilight Imperium Free is a great example. I'm going to play that next week, and I'm hoping that I will really like the game. But this is a game that requires you to take a day out of your busy schedule in order to get people to play it. It's not one that you can just bring out for anybody. And if you're a non-gamer, you are going to not get this game at all. And that is a flaw of the game. It is very long and it is very complex. But does that mean you should hate the game for it? And does that mean that if anyone doesn't like the game that they should be shunned for it? No. Twilight Imperium 3 does appeal to a fairly niche crowd. sorry, And... You have to accept that there are going to be people that don't like it. So deal with it. You know, what's the, what's the phrase that Sam Healy likes to say? Was it, build a bridge, walk over it. That's essentially, 
the sort of attitude that you should have. You know, don't look down on people for not liking your games or not liking a particular genre or mechanic just because you like it yourself. It's not worth it, and all it does is just gets rid of the whole concept that playing games is all about, which is meeting new people and interacting on a social level whilst enjoying yourself with a good game. You know, if we are seen to be perceived as a bunch of bickering children who can't accept someone differing, having a different opinion to them, then we're no better than half of the people who made mistakes in history who ended up starting wars because of bickering and arguing. So how does that make any any different? Just because the scale's a bit less, you know, less dramatic than a, a war, say, it's still the same thing. We don't want to... We're already perceived as geeks and nerds by the general public for liking board games. But do we really need to be perceived as bickering children that just get over overly angry about nothing? No. That's not how I want to be perceived anyway. Especially as most of my mates and my family are sort of like, oh God, you really are taking this board game passion to a new level. Yeah, I am. So what? You know, my life choice. And I'm going to enjoy doing it. And if you don't like board games at all, I'm not going to cut you out of my life as a result. I do have other interests other than board games, so I'm sure we'll be able to do something else. So, as I say, rant over. That's effectively what I have to say on the subject. Don't overreact to people's negative opinions of your games. Just learn to disagree, agree to disagree, sorry, and let's all get along and play some games. And here you are, thank you for putting up with me during that little rant and the first impressions. We're on to the top 10 worker placement games. Now, I had some choices as to what to do on this podcast, and so I put it to a poll on BoardGameGeek, and this was the unanimous victory. So, it's, I'm, I enjoy worker placement games. I would probably have to say that in terms of Euro games, this is my favourite part of Euro games. It's, it's hard to say whether to call it a genre or a classification. A mechanic, that's the word, yes. This would be my favourite mechanic in, in Euro games, and I always, if someone gives me a choice of Euro games to play, if one of them I know has worker placement in it, it's going to be one of my top choices to get to the table. Now, just to clarify for those who obviously are aware that the Dice Tower has recently just put out their top 10 worker placement games, I did not know they were doing this before I had the idea of doing this podcast. It wasn't until recently that they even released it, and I only found out that their top 10 for this week was worker placement games when Tom Vassell and Sam Healy did the question and answer section online uh, after they'd done their move, and they revealed that was the topic. So it's just a coincidence that they have tallied together. However, it has been very interesting to listen to their top 10 lists and compare it to what I've got. So... I mean, I always love watching the Dice Tower Top 10 list, and if you haven't already, I suggest you do as well. It's great fun, and if I knew more people that were willing to do so here, I'd be very tempted to try a video Top 10 list thing myself. But for now, it's just going to be me, little old me, on the podcast. So, without further ado, let's get into the Top 10 Worker Placement games, and just to reiterate again, this is the Top 10 games based on games that I have played, and my personal opinion... So, not to get back to that little rant from earlier, if you don't like what's on the list, then feel free to comment on it, feel free to let me know, and suggest some games that you thought should have made the list. I'll let you know whether I've played them, I'll let you know whether I like them or not, if I have played them, 
And if there are something that I haven't played, then great. I'll seek them out and see what they do. These lists are designed to evolve over time. So this won't be the last time you'll hear me do top 10 worker placement games. Some point later in this year, I'll revisit the list and we'll see how my opinions change. See how a gamer evolves in his opinion. That's the way I like to see it. Anyway, let's make a start. Number 10. My number 10 is a game by Queen Games. Now, Queen Games are a publisher that I normally haven't liked a lot of their games for, and they had done Kingdom Builder, which is a game I absolutely detest. But recently, they're sort of hitting it out of the park with some of the games that I've tried from them, so maybe my first impression of them was a little premature. So, but this one was a worker placement game that I'd not heard of. It just turned up out of the blue at a Southampton Game Club and I was lucky enough to get into it as a fifth player pretty much at the last second at arriving late. It's designed by Mathias Kramer and it's called Lancaster. Now this actually won the two, no sorry it didn't win, it was a nominee for the 2011 Spiel des Jahres Kennerspiel and it's been a nominee for various awards in 2012 as well so it's quite a popular game and it's ranked 146 on BoardGameGeek. Now with Lancaster you have a map of Great Britain with various cities, or oh, sorry, counties, Somerset being one of them. Go Somerset! Um, and the idea is, is that it's another one of those games where you place your knights out and get victory points for doing various things. However, this one has a lot of mechanisms in it that work really well. For starters, normally with worker placement games, you have to put your workers out, and if you take a spot, no one else can take that spot. Things work slightly differently in this game. Yes, the spot is yours, but your knights that you have to work to acquire during the game have a rank of them from one to four. If somebody puts a knight with a higher rank in the district that you've gone into, they kick you out. And you also have squires that you can acquire who, if you're in a tiebreaker, squires break the tie. So it's one of those worker placement games where you don't have to think, oh, he's taking that spot, there's nothing I can do about it. Get some squires, get a higher rank knight, and kick his butt out of there. And you can get a lot of nice cutthroat back and forth with people constantly kicking each other out of districts to get the action that they want. And it's not just simply go to a district and get a character. You've also got a section of the board where you go to war with uh, France and depending on how much you contribute to the war gets you victory points or bonuses. Um, every district you go to has a special ability you can use, whether it's getting more knights, getting more squires, uh, getting more money... Um, getting influence, which I'll get into later, and also, uh, what's the word? Um, oh yes, and building your castle up, which again gets you more abilities, so there's quite a lot to do. The influence bit is because of another mechanism I like, which is the voting round on laws. Every round, there are a set of three laws, I believe, that come out into play, and they influence how the game plays. They're like little objectives or bonuses that you can get. But... Every player has to vote on whether the law gets passed or not, and if it doesn't get passed, it doesn't come into play. Now, the influence characters and tokens that you can get from the worker placement aspect can give you more votes to stand for a law that you want to bring in. So let's say getting the highest ranked knight in a particular round gets you victory points for one law. Let's say it's something like that. Now, you might want that law to come out desperately if you've got a high-ranking knight. So you better make sure you've got some influence there to help stray, sway the vote to your side because not every other player is going to want it to come out. And if they know you're going to get a bucket load of points, they're not going to want it to come out. So you've got that aspect of back and forth again. It's 
I mean, I like voting mechanics in games. Voting goes down quite well, and in this one, it works. So, Lancaster is a good one. It's the theme is a little dry, and I wish there was maybe a few extra bits that could be done. I mean, I have not tried it with the expansions. Maybe with some expansions, it would offer a little bit more variety. And I was quite impressed how the bal the paths to victory were quite balanced. So maybe with a couple of expansions, it will go higher on my list. But you know, it's certainly a good start. Number 10, Lancaster. Number 9. My number 9 is a Euro game that has been popular for many years. This is still ranked number 15 on Board Game Geek. However, it does have a very divisive audience. Not everybody likes this game, mainly because the theme in it is rather dry. It's not you know, the most fun theme in the world, but the mechanics of it work quite well and there is a lot of strategy involved. This number nine is Kalos. Now, in Kalos, you basically are master builders. The king wants you to build up his castle and develop the city around it. You have to earn the king's favor, which gets you extra bonuses and gets you more victory points. However, you're basically also trying to come up with a combination of buildings that will work for you, provide the resources you need, and the workers you use obviously have to gather the resources, acquire money, or help to build the castle in the end of the day. Each building has a different ability, and as well as the buildings themselves, there is, I forget his name, there's effectively a, a, a prospector, I like to call him, I think he's got another name, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, and he moves along this road track, which is where you place all your buildings. It's effectively the castle at the top of the board and one giant road that zigzags. And as you place your buildings along, this prospector bloke goes along there and dictates how far you can actually build. And every player has the chance to move in forwards and backwards, depending on who they want to block and how far they want to get ahead. Also, if the prospector gets to a certain point, the game will end. So there's no set end game trigger which is quite a good thing that I like in certain Euro games. It's, it can be a bit of a pain when it's like it finishes in 10 turns, flat, the end, deal with it. You know, it's a downer, but I like a game that goes a bit beyond that and comes up with a variable end game trigger. Now, the thing I like about this is that there are a lot of options available and a lot of paths you can take. You can go for constantly getting the king's favor by building up his castle. You could go for gaining just everything from buildings. You could go for mass resources. And also you've got the cutthroat back and forth of blocking other players and effectively trying to screw over their game. So there's a lot of strategic thought in it and it's one of those things, I mean it's, it's kind of on par with Lancaster. If I, Kalos is pipping Lancaster just. It's, if you would tell me, oh would you like to play Kalos or Lancaster, I would probably play Kalos just because there's a bigger element of strategy in Kalos over Lancaster. However, they're very close and I would happily play either one of them. So, number nine, Kalos. Number eight. Well, number eight is probably going to get some stick because some people probably think it should be higher on the list. It's ranked 14 on Board Game Geek, just pipping Kalos. And it took me a while before I could get this to the table because not a lot of people had it and it's not the easiest one to teach. But that's Zolkin the Mayan Calendar. Now, in Zolkin, Zolkin has this really cool mechanic where as you're placing workers down, but you're placing them on a set of five interlocking gears. And 
depending on where they are on those gears at a particular time, you then have to take the workers off the gears. And when you take them off, you'll get a certain amount of resources or benefits or money or food, that kind of thing, depending on how long they spent on that gear. The longer a worker stays on that gear as it turns around, the more they will get or the different ability they will get. And each gear is very different. One is devoted to getting food, one is resources, one is uh, God's favors, one is crystal skulls, which is like a sort of rare artifact that gets you more bonus points, and one is for mostly commerce and building. So they're all very different, but the board looks gorgeous in this game. I mean, those five gears, especially if someone has painted them, look so good and just work so well. You know, it's not, they don't break, it's really does make it an eye-opener when you play this game. And the rest of the board is very colorful and detailed as well. Maybe a little too detailed because it does put people off when they look at it and go, oh my God, what is this? And that is one Florida game. It's not an easy one to pick up and it certainly isn't an easy one to teach. But it offers multiple paths that people can take. Although I'm not 100% convinced they're all balanced. I still think that going for the God's favor constantly will be the most optimal strategy. But the way that you have to balance out when you put the workers down and when you take them off the gears, it's a brain buster, but it's a welcome one. It is a good element of strategy where you're thinking, right, I desperately need food. However, I can only leave them on there for so long before I need to take them off. And the thing is, once you have placed your workers down, you can't place any more down, you have to take them off. So eventually you are going to have to take those workers off and get the abilities for them, even if they haven't quite reached the point that you're at. But the workers will constantly get put on and off these gears until eventually the end of the game comes and you total up the victory points as normal. But it's, it isn't going to go higher on my list because of the fact that I'm not convinced it's fully balanced. But it is a fun game to play if you can get into it. It's not the easiest game in the world and it looks gorgeous. I mean, it's not the cheapest game to buy, but you are getting quality when it comes to those board and gears. It really looks good. They've also just brought out an expansion for it now, I think, called uh, uh, Priest and Prophecy, something like that. And that looks like it solves one of the issues in the game that I had, which was it would have been nice to have sort of special powers for a particular race, that kind of thing. And the expansion looks like it solves that issue. So I would like to get this game to the table again with that expansion to see what happens. But all in all, Zulkin is a pretty good quality game. And theme-wise, it's easier to get into than, like, Lancaster and Kalis because you're effectively the Mayans building up your city and getting God's favour and I just think that theme is more enjoyable than simply getting the king's favour which is effectively what Lancaster and Kalis are all about. I tend to go for games that aren't all just about historical flavour. I prefer the these sort of games or ones that have a bit more of a fantasy setting if need be but Zolkin's a cool game and I, I enjoy playing it, so I look forward to getting this to the table again with that expansion. Number eight, Zolk. Number seven. Number seven is a staple in the board gaming world. I believe this is ranked number two on Board Game Geek at the moment, and it is constantly been in the top five for many years, and was possibly one of my favorite Euro games in the past, but has now slumped down the charts for various reasons. Designed by UA Rosenberg and published by Z-Man Games, this is Agricola. Agricola is the classic Euro game where you have your own farmer and you are building up your farm over the course of 14 rounds to get the most victory points. On your farm, you can plant grain and vegetables, you can raise sheep and cows and cattle and 
all sorts of things. You can develop your house by building rooms and upgrading it from wood to brick to uh, stone housing. You can procreate and have new family members who eventually grow up and work for you. So there's all sorts of really cool things you can do in this game. And it's quite a tough one as well. I mean, you have to have a little bit of everything, which is a little nitpick of the game, that you have to have a balanced farm at the end of the day. That's why it's not going higher up the chart. But the actions make sense and the theme is great. Some people don't like the whole aspect of having to feed your family and doing a farm is not their favourite theme, but I really got attached to this theme. The other benefit is the cards that are in this game, which have occupations and improvements that you can have, that you can use card drafting to acquire them at the start of the game, which drafting works well in many games. But having these occupations and improvements vary how each game plays, because you're going to have a different way of going about it. Now granted, you could argue that getting a certain combo of cards is going to beat somebody who just drew unlucky and I suppose there is a point to that but then that's why you use card drafting to mitigate that but even though certain games have surpassed it it is still a fun game that I will happily play I do not believe that its uh, successor Caverner has completely made this game redundant I think this game is still good and it still remains in my collection so Agricola the great farming game could be higher but You'll see why it's not as we go on. Number seven, Agricola. Number six. Number six is designed by the same person, UA Rosenberg. But it's also a staple. I believe it's number 10 on Board Game Geek at the moment. And don't think that all my games on this chart are all just like in the hundreds. I mean, okay, I suppose most of them are. But, you know, they're popular for a reason. That's why they're highly ranked. But this one has a similar feel to Agricola in the sense that you are building up your, well, instead of a farm, you're building up your wealth in a harbour and you're trying to get victory points just like many others. But this one is La Havre. Now in La Havre, the thing that pips Agricola, in my opinion, with this game is that you have, like in Agricola, you have cards for various improvements and occupations in this you have a selection of buildings that you can build which each have different abilities and actions that other people can use if they want to pay you for it or you can build for victory points and to use yourself but the order in which they come out will vary in each game and also you have special buildings that if you play the long game which is a long game I do warn you you should not play the long game if you've got like four or five players there but you can have special buildings which are definitely different each game and there's all sorts of really cool things that you can do in terms of Path to Victory. But one thing that pips Agricola with this game is that in Agricola, if someone nicks your space, you're screwed. You can't get it, and it could mess you over pretty badly. In La Havre, you've got a slight aspect of that. You know, you might have really wanted something and someone happens to nick it. But there's usually multiple other things you can do, and usually they're still all good. Someone went on the space that took money. Oh, well, I'll take all this fish then. I need to feed myself eventually, so I'm still going to need it. Someone bought that building. Oh, well, well, I can still use it later on. So for now, let's take this wood so I can build this. You don't feel quite so screwed over in this game as you do in Agricola. But certainly with either game, I would say the theme for Agricola is more appealing to me in terms of farming. But the fact that the cutthroatness isn't quite as bad in the Havre and the fact that there is... Um, that, like I say, it's just a bit of a friendlier game to get to the table 
and both of them have had really good iOS ports as well. So they both work for that. But the Harv also puts a Griggler because you don't have to balance everything out. You could just go solely for building lots of buildings and ignore everything else. As long as you feed your family, you're doing it right. You could go for getting as many ships as you can so that you can use the shipping lane at the end of the game to do trading for goods. You might have simply just cornered the market on a particular type of good, in which case you're maximizing your use for that. So there's many paths you can take, and unlike Agricola, you don't get penalized for not doing certain bits. So the half pips Agricola, in my opinion, at number six. Number five. My number five can, it's, I would say this is a worker placement game, but I wouldn't be surprised if one or two people came back and disagreed with this opinion. But because most people think that worker placement games should be literally physical workers, like people that you put onto spots to do something. This one works slightly different. This is a quality game by Fantasy Flight Games called Kingsburg. Now Kingsburg differs with the normal worker placement game because normally you have a set of workers and you place each one out. Kingsburg is slightly differently. The action spaces are people, like king, queen, assassin, jester, you know, various advisors, that kind of thing. And you are setting to build your city more prosperous than everyone else. But the way that you select each advisor that you want is dictated by three dice that you roll at, before each round starts. Three normal six-sided dice. And each advisor is numbered from 1 to 18. After you have rolled your dice, once you have decided who's going first by a particular rule set, then you take turns to place your dice on the advisors rather than a worker. And depending what you rolled, dictates on what advisor you can put them on. So for example, let's say you wanted to use uh, the assassin who happened to be a 12. You would need to put two sixes or a six, a three and a three, or a five, a five and a two. You know, get my maths right, <laughs> you know. And you know, you have to put the combination of dice on the particular advisor if you want them. Now, obviously, the higher you go, the better the advisor is, but that's not to say that the ones at lower levels aren't useful. And also, if you go for a higher level advisor, chances are that's the only thing you're going for because you're going to need all three of your dice. But if you went for lower numbers, like one to six even, then you could put out three separate advisors on a particular turn. But it's really cool in that you have to roll the dice and then adapt to what the dice have rolled to see whether it incorporates with your strategy. So there is an element of luck, but people like rolling dice. And this one can be mitigated with uh, tokens that give you like plus two to a particular roll. Certain buildings that you build can influence what you roll, that kind of thing. So there is mitigation and there's obviously a blocking aspect because if you take an advisor, no one else can. So you might think, oh, I better block him just in case. The expansion is what really brings this to life though, to forge a realm. If I didn't have the expansion to this game, it probably wouldn't make this high in the top 10. Maybe it would get to 9 and 10, but not as high as 5. To forge a realm really brings this game out, because it's a modular expansion that adds little things like an event deck, which keeps the variety up a bit more. Each player can have a character that they are at the start of the game, which gives them a special power, which I really like in games, you know, roles with special powers. and. One of the best things in this game is that normally you have five rows of buildings and they chain up and everybody has this choice. To Forge a Realm not only adds two extra rows, but it also allows each player to replace certain rows with alternative ones that give different buildings and abilities. 
So now you can have a set of buildings that only you can build and that maybe one other person might be building, but you could be the only one. And that just really puts the variety and longevity through the roof with this game. I haven't played Kingsburg in a while, I must admit. I've been trying out different games lately, but the more I talk about it, the more I really want to get this game back to the table. I will say that I have not tried Alien Frontiers yet, which is what some people are... little spoiler for you, Alien Frontiers is not on this list. But that's because I haven't played it. It's been out of print for as long as I can think. And I will be trying out the 4th edition when it eventually comes into play. And maybe I'll prefer that to Kingsburg. Who knows? I like the idea of a sci-fi retro feel. It may fit the bill. But for now, I think Kingsburg is solid. But I do say that if you buy this game, to forge a realm is essential if you're going to keep it. If you just want to buy the game to try out or you're just going to play it every now and again, you might be able to get along with the base game. But I think to forge a realm is as near as essential an expansion to this as you're going to get. I believe you can get both fairly easily. It's by Fantasy Flight, so everything looks colourful and really good components. So give it a shot. Kingsburg, my number five. Number four. Number four is a game I've only tried recently in my quest for getting some new worker placement games played, but I was expecting to hate this game. I thought, I don't particularly like trains. It's not a it's not a theme that I go for. I've played train games like Locomotive Works and Chicago Express and 18xx games in the past, and they've all bored me to tears. I've hated them all. The only train game I think I've actually got on my shelf, for the time being at least, at least for another two days, is Ticket to Ride. And Ticket to Ride, most people will probably say that doesn't even count as a train game because that's just a light family game. But this is a proper medium-weight Euro game based on trains that I have to say I think is really good, and that's Russian Railroads. It's a new game. I believe it's ranked 86 or certainly in the heart. It's certainly in that broad, that the 80s, 70s area on Board Game Geek. And it seems to have really hit the nail in terms of a smooth worker placement game that isn't too complex but alters, offers multiple paths. Now, with this one, you have, again, spaces to place your workers, which are all shaped to have the sort of Russian hats on them, which I think is quite a nice little touch. But you have three separate tracks that you can build. And it's when I say this is a point salad, I mean a point salad with extra pie, chips and gravy, because this one, you get points for just about everything. You have to build your tracks up and there's different colours of tracks and you have to build the lesser ones first before you upgrade them and that gets you points. There's an industry track where you can get special abilities from upping your industry in your stations and that and that gets you points. You can get special bonuses, tiles and stuff like that and hire engineers to give you extra abilities. Again, they give you points. You even get points for being the second and third player to go in a particular round as opposed to the first player. Literally, you get points for doing just about everything in this game and you are going to need a calculator or a good arithmetical brain in order to cope with this game. But why is it so high? Because Not just because it surprised me by being a train game that I would actually like, it just works so smoothly. I mean, you look at the board and you look at all this iconography and you think, oh my god, what is all this? But it's fairly intuitive. And it really didn't take long for the man who taught me this game to teach me to, to teach me it. I mean, I know I'm a gamer at heart, but I reckon even non-gamers could get into this. And it's only medium weight. It's not a heavy game. But there's multiple things you can do. You could go for upping train tracks like I did. 
You could go for specific bonuses that you want. You could try and get all the engineers because that gives you bonus points at the end of the game. You could do what my colleague did who went solely for industry and maximised everything there. You could try and get the best trains. It, it There's so much you can do in terms of paths to victory. But all the worker spaces are, you know, they're intuitive and it all makes sense. Thematically, it makes sense what you're doing. And another bonus is that you don't have... The cutthroatness is there, so you can block people. But it's not like if someone took the space that gave you an extra train that you're totally screwed because there's usually different versions of the same space. For example, you might have to place one worker to get a industry tile or, or train. But someone might have taken that space. But there's one after it that enables you to get the same thing but requires you to place two workers down, so it's more expensive. And there's one after that, which allows you to get both an industry tile and the train tile, but it requires three workers. So you're constantly having to dictate how many workers you can afford to get the item that you want. So you have to constantly think, right, well, what is my priority at this point and what should I go for? And because everything's such a point salad, you feel good about everything you do. Like, I've just going that ability and hired that engineer. Yes, 25 points. You just feel good about getting so many points. Even though technically you, everybody's getting that same amount of points. It's better than having a turn where you might go, I've done this, this, and I got three points. Whoopee. Didn't really do anything. When you get to have a turn and somebody goes, oh my god, you've got 94 points in that particular round, you just feel good. So... Like I said, Ticket to Ride was the only train game in my collection. That won't be the case in two days' time. I have gone as far as to buy this game. That is how much I enjoyed it. I can see myself playing this many times, trying out different ways of winning the game, and even teaching it to a few people who aren't that great with Euros. It's not a difficult game to pick up. So, kudos to those that made Russian Railroads. You found a train Euro game that I enjoy. Well done, congratulations. Number four, Russian Railroads. Number three, we're going back to Yuri Rosenberg territory. However, I promise you this is the last Yuri Rosenberg game on this list. I like his games. However, not all of his games are good. But I think the main ones that I like are actually on this list, to be perfectly frank. But this is what has succeeded Agricola, and that's Caverner the Cave Farmers. Caverner I was looking forward to, despite the fact that I had bought Agricola only a short while before, and I thought, oh god, this is going to replace Agricola. Thankfully, it doesn't replace Agricola. It does play differently enough that you can own both games. How does it differ, though? It's still the same sort of deal. You're building up a farm, and you've got vegetables and grain and animals that you can raise. However, this one's different because not only do you have the field, you have your cave, because this is set in caveman times, where you're playing dwarfs, and as well as building all the farm and the animals and stables and the outside, you can also excavate in your cave to build mines and build rooms, of which there are all these different room tiles that give you special abilities and victory points at the end of the game, and there's only one of each for most of them, so, you know, you've got to get that tile quickly if you want it. If someone nicks it, you're going to have to build something else. But there's so much variety. I mean, all the tiles are available to everyone. So, yes, you know... They're all there. It's not like some are not included in the entire game. But it's just you might decide you want that. There's so much choice. And unlike Agricola, you don't get penalised so much for not doing certain things. You get a little bit of negative if you can't feed your family. But feeding your family is nowhere near as tense as this as Agricola. And you also get a little bit penalised if you don't have certain types of animals. But not that much. 
but you can also specialize in this game and this is one of its big selling points in agricola there was a cap on everything you had which is why you had to have a balance of everything in this though it's not the case you can be do nothing but make carrots this is what you want do you want to just grow carrots and pumpkins all day fine grow 50 vegetables in your farm nothing else you might get penalized four to six points for not having certain animals but you will get 50 odd points for your 50 vegetables so you could specialize in anything and it's fairly balanced i had a game where my friend went for a major sort of animal um sorry a vegetable farm and and grain you know he was a proper farmer and i went solely for sheep now, do not look that in a weird way. I did not go for sheep for that respect. I just happened to see the room that gave you bonuses for sheep. Effectively, you were cutting the wool off them and using that as a trade. And I just thought, well, let's find out. Let's specialise in one thing and see if it can prove that this is how it differs from Agricola. And it worked. I won the game, but not by many points. And we both did completely different things. So it's I wouldn't advise playing it with too many players. I mean, there is a lot of components in this game. And you're getting what you paid for. You know, this can cost anything between 60 and 70 pounds. It's expensive. But there's loads of cool wooden tokens in there, loads of decent tiles. The boards themselves look great. I don't quite know why they put a nighttime version on the other side. That doesn't really make any sense to me. But oh well, it's what they decide to do. Maybe an expansion will do something with that later. I don't know. But it's just a really quality game. But I will say it's a little unwieldy. You are going to have to get some little Tupperware boxes or maybe a Euro token box, that sort of thing, and find a way to store this game and get it out on the table easily and quickly because otherwise it will be a bit of a pain. But once you get that underway, it's really good, especially with around three to three or four players. I think it plays best with. Five's not bad. Don't play it with six or more. It's a bit unwieldy. But... Certainly, three to five player game, this is a fantastic Euro game and definitely trumps Agricola in terms of this chart, but I would still happily play both. So, Caverna the KFRs makes the number three spot. Number two. My number two is a game that has a rather tacked on theme, but mechanics, it just works so well. This is a Dungeons & Dragons themed game where technically you're not actually going out on quests. You are the governor of a district in, in the city and you are sending out fighters and rogues and wizards and clerics to do quests for you. And the more quests that you complete and the more buildings that you build, the more victory points you get. And eventually you are trying to be the best lord of Waterdeep. That's what this game is, Lords of Waterdeep. Now, some can argue that the D&D theme is tacked on, but personally, if you get into the game a bit more, if you just really concentrate, the theme is there. I mean, if you get the specific meeples, uh, like some people, um, sorry, people, if you get the specific meeples for each particular class, then that helps. But the, the quest makes sense. You might have a quest that says, free the, free the fighters of, I don't know, Kingsburg. There we go, random location. Um... But the quest reward might get you several fighters to use in subsequent quests. So the quests do make sense, but it does require you to just look a little bit further. But theme aside, the mechanics of this game work brilliantly. It's smooth and easy to play, even when you've got the maximum number of players. And a two-player game of this can be done in next to no time at all. It just goes so quick. The iOS has a fantastic port of this game, one that I have on my iPad and one that I really enjoy playing against the computer. It's such a great port. 
And the expansion, uh, Scoundrels for Skullport, is such a good expansion that I would put this on the near essential expansions list as well because not only does it add more variety in the buildings and the cards but it also brings in the corruption mechanic which brings in a different way of thinking with your quests. Now the variety in this game is already pretty good because the buildings you can only build a finite number of buildings in a game and not all of them are going to come out so you may have certain abilities one game that helped you that won't be there again the next time. You have intrigue cards that you can play on other people a bit like interrupt event cards they may benefit you, they may benefit you, but also other people, or they may just damn right screw over other players. And it's just, it's very intuitive, it's not difficult at all, and if you're a fan of D&D, then it, it gets you into the game a bit more as well, even though it's a little bit tacked on at the end of the day. But it's just so smooth and works really well, and component-wise, you wouldn't expect uh, Wizards of the Coast to do such a good job with regards to the components in this game, but they really do make the board and the owners look great. Granted, yes, the people are cubes. That is a downside, but I've bought coloured meeples for this game. They're not shaped in particular ways like rogues or wizards. You can get those, but they are quite expensive. But I just went for coloured meeples so that they actually look like Carcassonne meeples in a sense, but they were the right colours, and that just helps as well to bring the theme out a bit more. So, Lords of Waterdeep, my number two. This is a great game. You should definitely try it. Even if you had doubts about the theme, give it a go, especially if someone says they've got Scoundrels or Skullport as the expansion. And finally, number one. For anybody who's listened to my podcast, the clue I'm going to give you right now is that it appeared on my top game of 2013. So if you've been paying paying attention to my other podcast, you will know what this game is already. Now, this game is set in a sort of alternate history, almost steampunky type feel world, where you are building up your uh, parts of the city with a new resource that is being put into play, and you are trying to effectively be the most prosperous entrepreneur that you can. Now, the way the mechanic works in this game is that you have cards that are laid out in a 3 by 3 grid, and each card is either a character you can use or a building you can purchase or a patent that you can acquire for like victory point conditions, that kind of thing. But the way this differs is that you don't place your workers on the cards. You place them in between the cards, almost like a kind of marketplace. And what happens is that when you place them there, nothing happens. But when you eventually take them off, you will either get money or you will purchase the building or you will acquire the patent or use the character. But the amount of money you pay to do so depends on how many other meeples are around that card. So it's a supply and demand mechanic. You might want to purchase a particular factory and it might normally cost you £5 to do so. But if there are five other meeples than yourself around that card, it's going to cost you 10 because it costs you an extra one per extra meeple. Alternatively, you might have a card that you have no interest in whatsoever, but there are seven meeples around it. If you take your meeple off, you will get £6 for £1 for every other meeple that you, that was around that card. So you can use it as a money gainer or to purchase the card, but you can also screw other people over by making things more expensive for them. Or you can just think, right, well, I don't care about that card, but I need some money. So let's go there and join in that bit of the market and get some money that way. There are multiple paths to victory. You can go for mining, you can go for building up like residential rent, 
you can go for uh, universities where you use workers to get you the points rather than anything else or you can opt to go for specific patents which some require you to construct lots of buildings some require you to get the most uh, money some require you to get the most resources um, mining resources that kind of thing and if you haven't guessed by now this game is called Spirium. Spirium is a great game and it ticks all the boxes for what a top game of the year should be because I put this as my top game of 2013 and that's not small praise. This one is cheap to buy, it is easy to teach, it scales well from two to five players, it contains a lot of tactical depth, it contains strategic depth, it contains um, multiple paths to victory, You, it's got longevity because the cards in the first two there's three ages a b and c and in a and b the cards are not necessarily going to come out so some games will have cards that don't appear and because you lay them out randomly in the three by three grid the way that the cards are laid out also increase the longevity because in one game you might have lots of factories bunched together in which case they're going to get expensive they might be spread out though in which case you don't get as much money from using other meeples to your advantage but it might mean that you can get your buildings that you want cheaper and it plays very differently depending on how many players you have as well because in five player games you've got all meeples all over the place and you can get a lot of money that way but in a two player game there isn't as much of that so suddenly you're a bit tighter for cash and you have to think oh well I better be careful about which ones I go for then so it really I can't say enough praise about this game it doesn't really have any negatives it just it it's not outstanding in a particular field. I wouldn't say it was the most tactical game you could play, nor the most strategic, but it just ticks all the boxes. It's got the tactics, the strategy, the scaling, the ease of the ease of teaching, the ease of play. It's cheap. You can get this game for something like £22, I believe, at the moment. That's like the most you should be spending on this game. It's a small box. The components look great. It's played with cards and a small little board. It's worker placement, which is already a popular mechanic, but it's an innovative worker placement mechanic. I think I've only seen one other game that uses a similar mechanic. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. It's I played it recently, and it's got a similar way where you put the workers in between certain things, like you like certain resources that you want. But it was a game that I didn't enjoy that much, and it's not that popular of a game. This one takes that mechanic and makes it work. The market mechanic is a great little invention for this game and it just makes it simple yet packs a lot of depth. You can't get many games that are this cheap and this small that pack this much depth. So Spirium is my top spot for worker placement games and I hope to be defending this soon on the Dice Tower Showdown because I believe they are going to be doing their top game of 2013 sort of four people against each other with their own opinion and if I get chosen for that I will be defending Spirium so look forward to that if that does happen but for now it's taking my top space of 2013 and it's also taking my top space of worker placement games if you haven't tried it it's ranked fairly high it's in the low 300s for board game gate which is still a very good game but it's been slightly put under the radar I think because of what other games came out at the time so if you haven't tried Spirium now try it and if you live near me or come to one of my Southampton and Portsmouth game clubs and you haven't tried it, let me know. I'll bring it and I'll happily play it. Spirium, my number one. Today 
you have it. That's my top 10 work and placement games. And that is the end of episode 13 of the podcast. Episode 14 will probably come out midway through March with another top 10 list. It's undecided. I will put a poll up on Board Game Geek and you can vote for which one that you would like to see. I will have another topic for discussion and I will give my first impressions on Twilight Imperium 3 for definite. As long as the day goes ahead, I mean, hopefully there won't be any cancellations, but if all goes well, on 9th of March I will be playing Twilight Imperium 3 for the first time and you can keep an eye on my Twitter account, at the Broken Meeple, to see updated photos as I go through the game. It's going to be epic and I cannot wait. Also, we have two, uh, the well, I would say three main events. One's not till late May and that's the UK Games Expo. I will be going to that. I have booked a hotel for all three nights. Tickets are live in two weeks' time, and I am going to be buying my tickets on that day, including maybe one or two tournaments. I'm tempted by the Netrunner tournament, maybe Ticket the Ride, just for a laugh. I'm not overly great at those games, but it just would be good fun. And I'm going to enjoy that as my first major exposition. But my first impending bits are coming around my 30th birthday on the 4th of April, where there is Tabletop Day on the 5th, and also the Mini Stab Convention at the jury in hotel in Southampton on the evening of the 4th all the way until the afternoon of the 6th. It's basically two days running solid and on tabletop day our Portsmouth on board club is teaming up with the Solent Wargamer Society also at the British Legion in Portsmouth to run a massive board gaming day from 10am till 6pm on tabletop day. Now if you live in the area I would strongly suggest you get in touch with me I'll let you know more information about that. However, I intend to be going to both of these, but I'm very tempted to do something a little bit different. Dice Tower recently did a 24-hour marathon of gaming, which was good fun to watch. And I can see that it's quite a tough thing to do, because trying to concentrate on games for 24 hours is going to knacker you out incredibly. Well, I thought, let's see now. After my 30th birthday, I'm going to want something to take my mind off the fact that I am 30. Because I don't mind getting older. It's just my thing. But... Saturday from 10 till 6, there is the Portsmouth Board tabletop game. And then when that's over, I can go straight to Mini Stab. And st- I won't be staying like in a hotel or anything, but I could at least just stay there and play games until Lord knows when. So I've decided that I'm very likely going to do a charity 24-hour marathon on table for the tabletop weekend. Call it my little contribution to the board gaming world. This will mean that I will start at the Portsmouth Onboard uh, Tabletop Day Club at 10 a.m., and I will be playing games all the way up till 6pm at that club. And then the only break I will get is the 30 minutes it takes me to drive from there to Southampton to go to Mini Stab, which I will continue gaming all the way up until 10am the next day. Now, there is no guarantee that there will always be people to play with at the early morning hours because obviously some people want to go to bed or won't want to stay up that late. However, that's not going to stop me because I will be bringing games to the convention that are solitaire as well. So games like Marvel Legendary, possibly even Caverner, uh, Flashpoint Fire, you know, basically a lot of the co-op games that you can play solo, maybe even Eldritch Horror. Maybe I could try that one as well. And it means that even if there aren't people to play against, I will be playing them by myself. Maybe sound a bit sad. Hopefully there will be people there willing to play games with me at those early morning hours. But that's what I'm very tempted to do. 24 hours of solid gaming with no breaks other than the 30-minute drive to there. And to be honest, I wouldn't class that as a break because I've still got to concentrate on driving. So it's going to be a mission that day if I go ahead with it. I haven't set anything in stone yet. I'm still researching it. 
but there's a good chance it will be happening and if it does whew, I hope that when I get the link online you will sponsor me and it will be a good weekend in general I'm looking forward to it already and I'm now even more tempted to do it perhaps we'll say yes I will this is a 95% certainty that I'm going to do it but I'll talk about that more probably in the next podcast because there will be at least one or two podcasts that come out probably before those events happen. And will I do any video? I mean, the YouTube channel is still running. Will I do any videos for the convention and that? Maybe. It depends. Some people aren't too keen on being on video and I'm not exactly the world's best cameraman. So we'll have to see. But I'll certainly be getting photos. I will certainly be writing up about it. Maybe even doing some YouTube vids for it, you know, as the game goes on. So the game goes on as the days go on and if I do the charity thing I might actually invest in a camcorder and try out you know maybe I'd have to take two or three cameras actually and basically film myself during the day because obviously it's 24 hours of gaming so you're going to see myself devolve into a puddle by the end of the 24 hours as I get completely knackered but that's for another time I need to shoot off now I'm off to a friend's house to try my first game of Twilight Struggle, the number one rated game. It's time to find out what all the fuss is about. And then straight after that, I've got gaming with other mates, where hopefully we'll be able to try out a nice Euro game, maybe Caverna, maybe Lords of Waterdeep or Spirium. Certainly one of the three things. It's all go today. Oh well, that's it from me. Thank you for listening to the Broken Meeple podcast. Thank you for playing games. Play games in any way, every day, and I will see you soon. Hosting for the Broken Meeple podcast is provided by SoundCloud.com. Please visit the blog at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.com. Find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash thebrokenmeeple. You can also find me on Twitter frequently at thebrokenmeeple. And also on BoardGameGeek, reviews and videos are posted up on a regular basis under Farmer Giles. That's F-A-R-M-E-R-G-I-L-E-S. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and I hope to talk to you soon about board games, and even better, I hope to play with some of you soon. Take care, and enjoy gaming.